0: Hey there, welcome to The Pocket Contemplative, I'm Dave Smelser. This week, we'll look at one of the biggest and deepest claims of the contemplative tradition that you and I don't fundamentally need to overcome our flaws or our character weaknesses, that instead, at a profound level, we are already happy, we're already connected to God, and that the kind of overcoming offered us by things like life hacks will often work in the short term, for sure, but will falter after that, and at the cost of keeping us from the thing which actually will help us. We will look at the Bible scholar Rami Shapiro along those lines, and at the Jesuit Anthony DeMello, and at what I'm told is the central book in the Orthodox tradition, apart, of course, from the Bible, the Philokalia, and a few others as well. It's rich stuff. We recently started releasing daily short videos, let me just mention, about the sorts of insights we talk about here. They've got stories, they've got teaching about the key tools of the contemplative trade, and they're all under a minute. We're still figuring out how to consolidate our branding. So they're at disparate places on disparate platforms for the moment. But you can find them under my name, Dave Schmelzer, on Instagram. You can find them under the Journey On page on Facebook or YouTube. Or you can find them at The Pocket Contemplative on TikTok. So again, sorry for the confusing branding. My name, Dave Schmelzer, on Instagram. Journey On on Facebook or YouTube, The Pocket Contemplative on TikTok. Check them out. Tell me what you think. All right. All right. Let's get going with Do Life Hacks Work? I noticed something intriguing the other day as I was surveying books by people who talk about at least related things to what we talk about here. I found some wonderful thinkers and practitioners to learn from, but a subset of the folks I read, I have to say, bugged me in ways I couldn't quite put a finger on. Rather than making me feel grateful to have run across this new helpful writer, I found myself feeling burdened and worse about my life. And then the common denominator between those more challenging authors hit me. They were unapologetically ambitious, which I could relate to because so are big parts of me. But though they were often talking about spiritual or contemplative things, they made a point of telling us how many millions of followers they had on social media. So clearly they have something to say we should listen to because they have millions of followers. Or they would name drop how they'd written an editorial for the New York Times or some such thing. And for sure, I'm confident part of what made me feel bad was just some kind of envy on my part. But it turned out that these authors did me a service because they helped me tease out how different kinds of advice help us at different stages of life, but also perhaps how some advice also has the seeds in it of its ultimate failure. I have read and been helped by so many life hacks over the years. Get up incrementally earlier to find out how much sleep you really need. And so become more productive. Limit carbs. Work on your online networking skills. And I suppose you can make a solid case that the Pocket Contemplative is full of life hacks. So bear with me for a moment. But most life hacks, at least that I've tried, have had short shelf lives. They couldn't deliver the things they were promising, at least in the long run. Enduring mystics like Teresa of Avila might say that a life hack's approach to growth might well be helpful in early stages of our journey, but would hit its limits as we continued with God, because then a new set of tools would be required. So all to say, contemplatives pitch a different approach to these big questions, which certainly feels better to me, but also which requires a different sort of tolerance for risk and a different kind of trust in God. And a starting point difference is whether we need to overcome something to get a good life if in all of us there's a kind of laziness or ignorance or self-sabotage and our life's work then becomes to push through those things if we want a good life. The authors that made me feel bad very much answered yes to this, absolutely. And they were encouraging me that if they could push through their own laziness and ignorance and self-sabotage and now had millions of followers on social media, maybe I could too. Of course, their premise in the end was that I couldn't because they, after all, were special people. That's why they had the forums they had. But perhaps I could learn something useful from them, like their millions of followers. Some people think this point of view uh, best is described as being saturated in the idea of original sin. So here's how Tara Brock puts it. She writes, the message of original sin is unequivocal because of our basically flawed nature, we don't deserve to be happy. We don't deserve to be loved by others at ease with life. We're outcasts. And if we are to re-enter the garden, we must redeem our sinful selves. We must overcome our flaws by controlling our bodies, controlling our emotions, controlling our natural surroundings, controlling other people. And we have to strive tirelessly, working, acquiring, consuming, achieving, emailing, overcommitting, and rushing in a never-ending quest to prove ourselves once and for all. Potently put, I think you'll agree. So over the years, I've had many conversations with people who wonder if their current life is in fact all there is. They may have some security, but they just feel like whatever they'd hoped their lives would add up to just isn't happening. Self-help people, in my experience, address this again in terms of overcoming. Don't give up on your dreams. Keep pressing. Stay positive. Develop new and better habits. And I'm sure all those things are good advice on their own terms. I've tried some of those things. But it turns out that those things aren't sustainable advice. In that sense, they come from that sense that Tara Brock is talking about, from original sin. If a fundamental sin— in us, means that our lives will only give us good things grudgingly. Then if we keep hammering away at that hard, scrabble sense of things, maybe we'll pop out into a new and better world. But contemplatives don't believe that. They talk about this malaise not in terms of needing to overcome anything, but in terms of feeling separated when we're not. They tell us that the news on this front is way better than we would thought, but we're going to need to relax a bit to experience that better news. So I've done a few podcasts on Julian of Norwich, Julian says, we are already united with God, this great 14th century mystic. It's already true. It's just a question of experiencing what is. Uh, A key scripture that these sort of contemplatives talk about, proving that we're not separated, would be the scripture, I am the vine, you are the branches in John 15. So if the, the metaphor we're being given is that God is this vine and we're branches on the vine, we don't have to choose to abide in the vine. We don't have to recognize that apart from God, we're nothing. We're just part of the vine. We're not this thing called a branch apart from this other thing called a vine. Branches and vines are pretty closely connected. Um, A scripture in Acts 17 tells us that God is that in whom you live and move and have your being, almost as if God is the sea that we are swimming with, and maybe even that we're a part of in a way we haven't quite reckoned with. A common contemplative analogy is that if we think of like, God, I suppose, as an ocean, we are waves. So on one the one hand, we seem separate. On the other hand, we're, waves are pretty closely connected to an ocean, and soon at some point we'll crash back in and just be the ocean, and then another wave will form. With that view of the world, maybe we don't need to overcome anything. Maybe we just need to be attentive to what already exists in us, to what already is in the world. Some contemplative Bible scholars do a deep dive into this by the bold suggestion that consciousness is how we tap into God, and consciousness is eternal. So you'll recall one of the big metaphors that we talk about here, which is a common contemplative metaphor, is that what we're encouraged to do is to get behind the waterfall of our thoughts and emotions, to, like, pretend there's an alcove and a rock behind this waterfall that's tumultuous, which is all our thoughts and emotions. And rather than just being the waterfall and tumbling down with all those thoughts and emotions and churning up, we're the one, our truest self, is just in that alcove behind the waterfall And we notice those things, and we might name them, we see them going by, and that as we do that, we find something real. I think that's the sort of consciousness that these great Bible scholars talk about, that is actually being in a branch on the vine as we're in that alcove. We're just being that God thing. That's the consciousness we're talking about. So here's some thoughts from Rami Shapiro. This is from his book, Perennial Wisdom for the Spiritual Independent. He's a Bible scholar. He says, Jesus, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember that part of the Bible? He's not saying he's older than Abraham, which is what his audience seemed to think he's saying. This again from Rami Shapiro. He is saying that the I of him embraces time and yet isn't trapped in time because he's that consciousness and that outgo behind the waterfall, which is eternal. You cannot cease to be, Shapiro writes, because you are that which is endless being. Your form will end, your memories will fade, but the self, the eternal I, endures forever. This great Christian contemplative Meister Eckhart says, the ground of God and the ground of the soul are one and the same. God and us, the same. What a crazy thought. Shapiro goes on to say, nothing's hidden from God because nothing is other than God. Again, he's a branch, we're a vine, but we're all connected. God doesn't read your mind. God is your mind. God doesn't survey your thoughts. God's the thought, the thinker, and thinking itself. Now, again, I don't know what I think about all this. This is deeper than me, but I'm just bringing to uh, your attention that this is a major, major contemplative theme, and we are, after all, the pocket contemplative. So I just want to submit it to you and see what you think about this view of kind of what we have to do in life. Do we have to overcome stuff, or do we have to settle into being a part of a vine, which is consciousness, which is beyond that? Anyway, keep going. Shapiro writes, when you hunt for God, you pretend that God is other than you and other than where you are. The hunting itself creates the distance between the hunter and the hunted. The more you seek God, the further God recedes. Now, Shapiro's a rabbi, so he's, he's into organized religion, but he critiques his own field by saying, this is the paradox of organized religion. It promises an intimacy with God, but offers an idea of God that, like the horizon, seems to back away from you with every step you take towards it. When the Hebrew prophet Elijah sought God in the tornado, God wasn't in the tornado. When he sought God in the earthquake, God wasn't in the earthquake. When he sought God in the fire, God wasn't in the fire. God isn't in anything. God's everything. But when Elijah stopped looking for God in anything, the presence of God got known to him as the fragile sound of stillness in 1 Kings 19. I think that's pretty powerful, right? It's a very famous story in the Bible. Where's God? God is in the stillness. God's not in that external stuff. God's not outside of him. Shapiro writes, our ego self imagines itself to be apart from God rather than a part of God, Julian of Norwich would very much agree, Teresa of Avila in the end would agree. When the contemplative was dying, this archetypal contemplative, her students crowded around her begging her not to go. Her response was, where could I go, right? Because if she's always a part of the vine, she will continue. That is a kind of interesting view of heaven, right? Stillness, Shapiro writes, is an undisturbed state of the intellect, the calm of a free and joyful soul light and unsleeping watchfulness, untroubled repose in the midst of great hardship, and finally, solidarity and union with God. And actually, I said Shapiro writes this. He doesn't. The Philokalia writes this, which is the great uh, kind of collection of wisdom teachings, often mystical, that's such a basis of Eastern Orthodox spirituality. I'm told it's the second most popular book in Eastern Orthodox churches to this day, to the Bible. Um, And it was a collection of sayings from the, the 4th to the 15th century from monks and mystics. And they write, stillness is an undisturbed state of the intellect, the calm of a free and joyful soul, being still, being behind the waterfall, being in that alcove. It's light. It's an unsleeping watchfulness because it's consciousness, right? It's untroubled repose in the midst of great hardship. And finally, it's solidarity and union with God. The great goal of Eastern Orthodox spirituality is union with God. It's not being even a friend to God. It's being united with God. That's also what Western thinkers like Teresa of Avila talk about and what Julian Norwich talks about, that the goal there she describes as oneing with God, recognizing we're one. Uh, back to Shapiro. It's better to be wise, he says, than pious. The pious focus on perfecting the self by following rules. This focus on self isn't spiritual, it's narcissistic. Have compassion on yourself, and you're gonna have compassion on others. Know that there is no straight path. Accept yourself as you are and bring compassion to bear in all that you do. I'm not quite sure how that follows the flow of what we've been talking about here, but it seems to talk about life hacks, right? You don't have to overcome something, that you you need to be just wise. You don't need to follow any rules. You just need to have compassion on yourself and follow this unstraight path that is your life, and you're going to find good things happening. Uh, Shapiro makes a commentary on the book of Job, which I find quite compelling. God, as I read the book of Job, he says, seems to be saying to Job, Look, the universe is wild. It's chaotic and wonderful and terrifying all at the same time. You can't pick and choose what happens to you. And in time, all of it will happen to you. Good and bad, blessing and curse, joy and sorrow. That's the way it is. Your task isn't to erase or avoid suffering. It's to embrace it and make the most of it. The key to living well in the madness of reality is radical acceptance, not control and avoidance. And Shapiro then says, rather than despising himself as dust and ash, Job finds comfort in being dust and ash, knowing that dust and ash are the very stuff of divine creation and creativity. So he doesn't fight his crazy reality. He settles into it, knowing that God is there. Um, Let me transfer from Shapiro to this Jesuit teacher we've talked about a few times here, Anthony DeMello. He agrees with Shapiro, and he says, this understanding of consciousness and God helps us be happier. So my quotes here are from his book, Stop Fixing Yourself, Wake Up, All Is Well. Pretty direct title. I think you'll agree. And Shapiro says, all mystics, no matter what... And again, he's a Jesuit, so a Catholic priest. All mystics, no matter what the theology and no matter what the religion, are unanimous on one thing. All is well. Though everything is a mess, all is well. They say you're already happy right now, though you don't know it. That's what mystics say. All is already well. If it's happiness you're looking for, he says, you can stop wasting your energy trying to cure your baldness, building up an attractive body. Or changing your residence, your job, your community, your lifestyle, even your personality. Do you realize, he writes, you could change every one of these things. You could have the finest looks, the most charming personality, and the most pleasant of surroundings and still be unhappy. So right, what he's critiquing is life hacks, right? Is that you have to overcome some problem in yourself to get happiness. His point is, you're already happy. All mystics say that. You just have to settle into it and experience the happiness that's already there, Um He says, the mystics and the prophets don't bother one bit about honor. Honor or disgrace meant nothing to them. They were living in another world, the world of the awakened. Success or failure meant nothing to them. So again, those 6 million uh, followers on social media weren't really the big thing of the mystics and the prophets. And he closes by saying, you don't need to do anything to acquire happiness because happiness can't be acquired. Again, back to his basic point. Why is that? Because you have it already. How can you acquire what you already have? Uninterrupted happiness, he says, is uncaused. True happiness is uncaused. You can't make me happy. You aren't my happiness. You say to the awakened person, why are you happy? And the awakened person replies, why not? Happiness is our natural state. We are branches on a vine. Happiness isn't an achievement. Love is not an achievement. Holiness is not an achievement. They're each a grace, a grace called awareness, a grace called looking, observing, and understanding getting in that alcohol behind the waterfall, to the eternity of the consciousness, which is sort of God in some way, say these people at least, once we find it. So again, the contemplatives make a bold claim that it doesn't work to overcome our worst selves in order to get a good life. Our happiness, as the Philokalia teaches us, comes by doubling down instead on a kind of stillness. Anyway, I submit that to you today. I'll talk to you soon.